You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. On December 7th, 1967, Otis Redding, King of Soul, singer of Try a Little Tenderness and Respect, yes, that one made famous by Aretha Franklin, recorded these words for his latest record. Sittin' in the morning sun, I'll be sittin' when the evening comes. Watchin' the ships roll in, then I watch them roll away again. I'm sittin' on the dock of the bay, watchin' the tide roll away. I'm just sittin' on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Wasting time. <laughs> well, the, the lyrics of his song are somewhat melancholy. There's also something very attractive, at least personally, to me, to that idea of just having the time to sit on the dock of the bay, wasting time. The problem is, I don't have a lot of time to waste. Take last Tuesday, for example. I was scheduled to work until 5 o'clock, which was a problem because I needed to pick up Lizzie at 4.45 from our house, drive up to Churchill on the north side, pick up Zach, whose rugby practice ended at 5-ish, and then over to the rugby club on 9th Avenue North where Lizzie's rugby practice started at 5.30. We were a couple minutes early, so we killed a little bit of time in the parking lot until her team showed up, dropped her off, drove Zach back home to the south side with a short list of chores that I asked him to accomplish, which would help me out a ton in our busyness and told him to make sure he ate some supper. Drive back up north to 9th Avenue North to the rugby club to watch Lizzie at her practice which ended at 6.30 back in the car. Drive home for 6.45 where I scooped some supper into a to-go container for Lizzie. Find out Zach didn't do the chores that I asked him to do. Scramble to feed 14 dogs and get out the door in time for Zach to make it to youth and me to make it to the family meeting for 7 o'clock where Lizzie sits in the back room eating the supper that we didn't have time to eat at home. At some point in the evening, Christine's eight-hour board meeting ends, and she comes and picks up Lizzie from the church, and our meeting here ends at 8.45, so I kill a little bit more time while Zach finishes up at youth at 9, and since I'm already scrambling, why not drive Zach home at 9.05 so I can make a movie at the movie mill with some friends at 9.15 where I eat popcorn for an appetizer so I can have dinner at 11.45 sitting at my island before I go to bed and get up and do it all over again. Anybody else relate to that? (laughs) Yeah. So wasting time seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? The truth is, it seems like we don't have time to waste. And though he didn't know it, neither did Otis Redding. Three days after recording his song, his charter plane crashed in Lake Monona outside Madison, Wisconsin, killing Otis and six other members of his band and crew. You can't save time. You can only spend it. Spend it wisely. And to help us understand what it means to spend time wisely, we're going to look at this ancient prayer, this ancient poem in Psalm chapter 90. I encourage you to open your Bibles there. It's a prayer that's attributed to Moses, which is the only psalm in the entire book of Psalms attributed to Moses. And it's significant where this psalm is placed in the book of Psalms. In fact, the book of Psalms is really five different books. It's the books of Psalms. And the Psalm of Moses is placed right at the beginning of book four. Why? We can't know for sure, but we can make some educated guesses by looking at the context both of the book and of the history when the book was compiled. Book three ends with lament. 
It ends with a doxology, verse, uh, chapter 89, verse 52. Praise be to the Lord forever, amen and amen. But that probably wasn't originally part of Psalm 89. Psalm 88, the psalm right before it, is the darkest, most hopeless psalm in the entire book of Psalms. And Psalm 89 isn't much better. It ends with these questions. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? And then book four offers some perspective. In the historical context, the Israelites were probably just coming out of exile back to the promised land when the Psalms were most likely compiled into the book, the form that we have today are relatively close anyways. It was in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah's story in just a couple of weeks. But prior to the exile, prior to this Babylonian power overtaking them, the hope of the nation was placed in the anointed one, the king. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And they're coming back from exile, and they have no king. Where is the love you promised to David? A king represented security and stability. And now that there's no Davidic king on the throne, where does stability and security come from? And the priests who compiled the Psalms, this worship book of the nation, probably wanted to remind the people that even though it seemed like the promises to David had failed, even though there was no Davidic king on the throne in which to take refuge and find security and stability, the Lord's promises and the Lord's faithfulness extended further back than his promises to David. Remember Moses. He has something to say about God's faithfulness. He reminds us that God was faithful to us, his people, even before there was a king, and therefore now we have no king, we can still trust God will be faithful and he will protect us. This is a good reminder for us in this reality. In the past three years, we've discovered that much of what we trust for stability and security is not stable, nor is it very secure. But God is still faithful. God is still faithful. Before there was Christendom, God is faithful. Before there was a stock market, God is faithful. Before there was COVID, God is faithful. Before there were vaccines, God is faithful. And therefore, we can trust that God is still faithful now in our present post-restriction reality. In his ancient prayer poem, Moses connects trusting God with having a proper perspective on time. And he argues that having a proper perspective on time is to see time from God's perspective. He starts in verse one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Dwelling place, a home, a place of refuge, of security and stability. It immediately brings to mind for me the, the temple or the tabernacle for Moses which was God's dwelling place, but notice that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, God, you have dwelt with us through generations. He's saying, God, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. He, he zooms out, 
It's not just about your life or your experience in these few years that you walk this earth. It's not just about your present reality. We need to see ourselves within the context of history, within the context of God's story with his people. And as the tabernacle for Moses and the temple for Solomon and onward was God's dwelling place, so God has been the people's dwelling place before there was a tabernacle and before there was a temple. And he will continue to be through all generations. See, Moses is reminding us that our security, our stability is not found in a building or a king, but in God. Verse two, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. No, he zooms out again, not just history, but all of creation. Let's go back to the beginning. Before there were mountains, before the earth was made, you were faithful, God. And zooms out even further, not just creation, but from everlasting to everlasting, you are faithful. I love how the common English Bible translates this. It says, from forever ago to forever from now. Or for those of you who are Toy Story fans, to infinity and beyond, right? Go back in time to a time before time and go forward in time to a time after time and you will find God is still there. He exists and he is faithful. He is God. And this is the proper perspective on time. The context for understanding your life and making sense of your life is not your life from conception to death, but it's from everlasting to everlasting. And in that context, Moses writes this, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. That should be familiar to us as we read through the New Testament, particularly Peter's letter. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Have you ever noticed that the older you get, the faster time flies? Yeah, can you imagine then how fast time was flying for Moses? He was probably close to 120 years old when he wrote this prayer. Time must have been flying for him, like a breath, right? Like grass springing up in the morning, dead by the evening. Imagine time from God's perspective then. Imagine how much faster it would be, a thousand years like a day, not even a day, like a few hours of the night just gone like that. This is the proper perspective on time. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, writes this. Our present life on earth is a dot. It begins, it ends, it's brief. But from that dot extends a line that goes on forever. That line is eternity, which Christians will spend in heaven. Right now, we're living in the dot. But what are we living for? The short-sighted person lives for the dot. The person with perspective lives for the line. See, a proper perspective on time affects how we live in time. It affects how we live our lives. What are you living for? You can't save time. You can only spend it. Spend it wisely in view of the line. 
A proper perspective on time also gives us a proper perspective on our money. We talked about this last week. You're going to part with your possessions at some point. Either when you die or you can give them away. You can invest them now. You can part with them while you're alive and decide where they go. And, and when we invest in the kingdom of heaven, when we invest in the line with our resources, with our time, our talent, and our treasure, when, while we are in the dot, those things show up for us in eternity. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. He says, feed the poor, feed the crippled, the blind, and the lame from your financial resources, and when you do, verse 14, you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You sent it on ahead by investing in the line. What are you living for? Take a look at your bank account, your credit card statement. Are you living for the dot? Are you investing in the line? Take a look at your calendar, your, your day timer on your phone, your schedule. Are you living for the dot? Or are you investing time in the line? You can't save time. You can only spend it. So spend it wisely. A proper perspective on time means that we see our time, we see our lives from the context, within the context of eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. And it also means that we recognize God owns everything. Look at what Moses says here in verse three. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. He's acknowledging that, that God controls our time. He controls our lives. He only has to speak and life begins and he only has to speak and life ends. We, we get this. We understand this at a fundamental level because when somebody that we love is diagnosed with a terminal illness, what is usually our first response? Oh Lord, oh Lord, can you do something? Please do something. Why? Because at least at some fundamental level, we believe that God has control over our lives. Our times are in his hands. And this changes our perspective on time. It's not yours. It's been entrusted to you to manage on God's behalf. He owns your time. He controls your life. Carl Honoré, a historian, says that the first public clock was set up in a public square in Germany in 1370. There's some debate about whether that was actually the first one or not, but the point is this. Prior to the clock, our time, our schedule, was largely controlled by the movement of the sun and the rhythm of nature, recognizing, of course, that God was in control of the sun and God was in control of nature. We acknowledge that God was in control of our schedules. With the invention of the clock, Time became a commodity to be traded and spent rather than a limit on our activity and our productivity. Time was no longer controlled by God. We were now in control. Daniel J. Borston puts it this way. He's another historian. Here was man's declaration of independence from the sun. New proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only later would it be revealed that he had accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine with imperious demands all its own. Now, I'm not saying clocks are bad. 
This is what got us all together in the same room at the same time, right? But they come with consequences, and one of the consequences of measuring time in this way is it gives us the illusion that we're in control of time. Moses, in this ancient prayer, reminds us God owns and controls your time. He's the owner. He's entrusted it to us to manage on his behalf. And so it changes the question, right? It's not how much time should I give to God, it's how much of God's time am I going to spend on myself? The same principle holds true whether we're talking about time or talent or treasure. It all belongs to God. He's the owner, he's entrusted it to us to manage on his behalf. So when it comes to money, it's not how much money should I give to God and his work, but how much of God's money that he's entrusted to me to use for his benefit and for his glory should I pay myself? How can I use God's money that he's entrusted to me to best advance his interests in our world? After giving us this perspective on time, teaching us to see the context of our lives is the context of eternity, not our life itself, Moses gets to his first request for God. Verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying that we can only wisely spend our time when we recognize that our time is limited. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then, just before that, Moses reminds us of our limited time. Verse 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and fly away. See, the reality is that God only knows how much time you actually have. But there's kind of an average, right? 70 or 80 years, Moses is saying, somewhere around there. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like soccer. Only the ref really knows how much time is left in the game, right? The t- you kind of get a general idea, but the ref is the final authority about when the game ends. And as humans, we roughly have 70 or 80 years, which sounds like a lot to those of you who are in your teens or your 20s, but not so much to those of us who are in our 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. Moses is pushing 120. He's definitely in stoppage time. That whistle could blow any minute. And he knows his time on earth could end. He can't stop it can't do anything about it. He can't save it. He can only spend it. And he wants to spend his remaining days wisely. And he advises us from his perspective of almost 120 years old to do the same. So if you are in your teens or your 20s, you have the cheat code to life right here in this passage. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Pay attention to this, to somebody who's gone before you, so that you can spend your days well. How can we be sure if we're spending our time well? Take some time and do an audit of your schedule. 
I gave you a card. Most of you probably picked it up on the way in. If you didn't get it, you can pick it up on the way out because I don't actually want you to fill it out right now. I know it came with a pen, mostly because we just want to get rid of those pens. They were donated to us. We have 800 of them, like 800. I'm not even exaggerating, I don't think. Uh, So take it home with you. Don't put it back in the box, please. Just take it with you. Take five on your way out. It's totally fine. If you are doing this at home online, you can find this sheet or a form of it on YouVersion, the Bible app. Go to events, click on eFree Lethbridge, and in the sermon notes, you'll find it there. If you're here in the room, you can do the same as well. Here's what I want you to do with this card. I want you to take it home. And maybe not today because it's Mother's Day and you should celebrate your mom, but at some point this week, schedule it in, have a conversation with your family, whatever your family looks like, whether that's your spouse, with your kids, a partner, parents, roommates, small group, mentor, whoever you kind of do life with and who speaks into your life and have this conversation. You need to start with your goal. What is the goal of your life? What are you living for? What do you want for your life. When you get to the end of it, what do you want people to say about you? And, and for those of you who have kids, ask the same question. What do you ultimately want for your kids? As they grow up and start to move out of the house, what, what do you want to set them up with? What do you, what's really important, ultimately important? And then, in light of that goal, fill out the card. What should I add to my schedule that isn't in there? What should I delete from my schedule that isn't helping me achieve that goal? What should I increase I need to do more of? And what should I decrease, invest less time than I am currently? Now, that's just good advice, right? You could find that in any self-help book. What are your goals? And then organize your life around your goals. As followers of Jesus, it it comes to a new level. Because as followers of Jesus, we confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the master. He's the king. He's the owner of our time and our lives. And so we need to begin by submitting our dreams and our ambitions and our goals to Jesus. Jesus, what do you want for my life? What do you want me to accomplish? Jesus, what do you want for my kids? What do you ultimately want for them? And as we submit our goals and ambitions to Jesus, that we also submit our schedule to Jesus. And so we take this card and we say, Jesus, my time is in your hands. What would you like me to add to my schedule? What would you like me to delete? What would you like me to invest more time in than I am right now? What would you like me to invest less time in? As part of your time audit, if you dare, if you're courageous, take a look at how you use your phone. Check the battery usage. It will show you where you spend time on your apps. And if you're not sure how, ask a teen or a young adult to help you. I'll be asking my son. If you haven't done this for a while, you will be tempted to think that your phone is lying to you, that there is no way you spent that much time on Candy Crush. Trust the data. The smartphone has only been around since 2007, which, again, depending on your perspective, is not actually a long time. As of 2016, the latest stats I could find, the average owner of a smartphone is on their phone for an average of two and a half hours a day over 76 sessions. 
two and a half hours a day. And that's all the owners of smartphones. That includes people that like, don't even know how to use their smartphones. They're included because in, they own one. If we just look at millennials, they, they didn't do stats for Gen Z, but if we just look at millennials, they're on their phone for an average of five hours a day. Five hours a day. Can't save time. You can only spend it. Spend it wisely. And so maybe the phone needs to go in the decrease category. And if it does, you're going to have to be really intentional about it because the phone does not want to be left alone and will do everything in its power to try to get you to pay attention to it. That's one concern I have, that we're wasting time mindlessly and we don't have a lot of time to waste. The other concern I have arises because I am part of you and we live in a culture that drives us towards productivity. We are Albertans. More than that, we're Southern Albertans. And even on top of that, we are Southern Albertans who are Protestants. And so we have this Alberta work ethic mixed with this Protestant work ethic. And we love to be productive and busy and fill our schedules. And laziness is the worst sin you could ever be accused of. I'm concerned that you're going to listen to this prayer of Moses and think, he's right. Time is short. I've got to cram everything I can into the time that I have. And that would be to miss the point. Notice Moses moves from teach us to number our days, our very limited fleeting days to this, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. In other words, God, I'm gonna take time at the beginning of the day before it gets too busy just to be satisfied with your love. See, I think we know time is limited. I think that's why we're so driven to stuff everything we can into every waking moment because we know, YOLO, you only live once, right? We're driven to be productive, to do as much as we can, to experience as much as we can, to commit our kids to as much as we can because we're driven by the fear of missing out. If I don't engage in this activity, I will miss it. I will miss out. I will miss an opportunity. And especially, it seems like, coming out of the pandemic, we've been so kind of forced into taking some time to not be active for so long and the restrictions have been released and now we're making up for lost time and we're cramming everything in that we missed out on over the last two years into two weeks. And I'm concerned that you're going to hear this message and feel pressure to do more and produce more and fill every moment when perhaps the wisest thing that we could do with our time is rest. Perhaps the thing that we need to most increase in our schedules, maybe even drastically increase in our schedule, is rest. We've talked about the adoption of the clock and the smartphone, another invention that radically altered our perspective on time and our lives was the invention of the light bulb in 1879. Again, from our perspective, a long time ago, but from the perspective of history and definitely from the perspective of eternity, not that long. Anyone know how many hours per night an average person slept prior to the light bulb? Eleven. 11 hours a night was the average night sleep prior to the light bulb. 
Anybody know what the average person sleeps in North America today? <laughs> Less than seven, and that includes children who sleep for 12 hours and are definitely skewing the average up. We've lost four hours of sleep on average per night in 150 years. Why? Because we don't have to go to bed when the sun goes down. We have created light. We can be productive. And again, I'm not saying the light bulb is bad. We need light. I get it, but it has consequences. And one of the unintended consequences is that it gives us the illusion that we are in control of our time. Now I get it, it might be a little surprising to listen to a sermon entitled All In Time and hear Rest More. I get that. You might expect me to be saying we need you to increase your volunteer hours. Some of you are spending too much time on yourselves and you should spend more time in the church and get in, into our kids area and get into our youth and come and help with coffee and ushers and, and we could use you, don't get me wrong. But this surprising instruction and pattern is established right from creation, right? God creates the whole world, and at the end, day six, he creates humans in his image, and he gives them a huge job. Be fruitful, be productive, be very, very productive. Care for all the animals and the plants and the, and the water and, and, and the fish and everything. Tend to this garden. You're, I've created this garden. Don't mess it up, I'm putting you in it. You've got work to do, you've got a lot to do, so let's get a good night's sleep so we can get started tomorrow with a Sabbath with a day off, with rest. And this same principle is in Jesus' teaching to his disciples as well. It's the same instruction. Be fruitful. In fact, be exceedingly fruitful. The more productive you are, the more glory you will bring to the Father. Oh, that's great, Jesus. How do we do this? Remain. Abide. Rest in me. In God's economy, Fruitfulness comes more often from rest than it does from hurry. This past Lent, I was reading a Lent devotional put together by Biola University, which included a psalm and a devotional and artwork and music and a poem every day. And I came across this poem fairly early on in the, in the uh, Lent journey from Elizabeth Barrett Browning reflecting on Psalm 127, verse 2. And she writes this. This is just part of the poem. Of all the thoughts of God that are born inward onto souls afar, along the psalmist's music deep, now tell me if that any is for gift or grace, surpassing this. He giveth his beloved sleep. What would we give to our beloved the hero's heart to be unmoved, the poet's star-tuned harp to sweep, the patriot's voice to teach and rouse, the monarch's crown to light the brows. He giveth his beloved sleep. Seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? You can't save time. You can only spend it. So spend it wisely by resting more. But what if we lived this out? What if when people entered our church, or our lives, they walked away saying, oh, those people were not rushed. They were not stressed. Those people seemed full of rest. They seemed settled and confident and not hurried. They weren't controlled by time. 
What if when people came into our church or into our lives, they could sense the peace of God? Wouldn't that give them a taste of the kingdom? So maybe Otis Redding had it wrong after all. Maybe sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away, wasn't wasting time. Maybe it was spending it wisely. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.